not getting a subscription to a local paper uh, is you're killing the local news source. It's great to be able to read on Facebook, you know, that this happens, but how much of it is really local news? That was Tom McCogue, a former local journalist for the Spring Hill Parsboro Record and the Carnival Herald, our guest on today's episode. Stay informed, get involved. Welcome to the Great Amber's Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. Good morning, everybody. I'm so happy and pleased to be joined by Tom McCogue today. Uh, Tom, you may or may not know him as a former reporter or journalist in town, or either through cadets, the rink, or Little League Baseball. Tom's been involved in your community for a long time. Tom joined the Spring Hill Parsboro Record and worked there until March 1982, where he switched and joined and was the Amherst Bureau Chief for the Chronicle Herald and Mail Star. In March 2009, he moved to the Herald's head office. He left the Herald in August 2017, when he joined the town of Amherst as Corporate Communications Officer. So it is important to state again that Tom is not here in his role as the communications director for the town or in any connection to any of his previous roles. This is him talking about his experiences in the news industry and the current state of how things are. And we covered a lot. You know, Tom started talking about how he first got into the news way back when in high school, uh, how the local editor offered him an after-school job at the, the local weekly in Palmerston, Ontario. Uh, he told us about sending out letters and basically his portfolio to newspapers all across the country when he was looking for a job. We covered a lot more from there. We talked about what is local news and its importance. There was a lot to this conversation. I'm so glad Tom was able to come on and have this one with us. As always, if you're enjoying the content and enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now so that you don't miss an episode or any more of our new local content. One last thing before we get to the interview, I've talked a lot over the last few weeks that I've joined the Stop the Hate for Profit movement and withdrawn from Facebook for at least the month of July. And this conversation reminded me another reason why I wanted to do this is Facebook sells ads on all of the content that saltwire.com makes or the Chronicle Herald makes or all the local news people make, but they don't pay the local news for that content. That content's shared on their platform for for free and Facebook sells ads and monetizes it, but doesn't share it back to our community. And Tom and I actually talk about this a lot. So it's kind of a timely, timely conversation. So again, that is, you can find out more about this. It's at stophateforprofit.org. Now here's our interview with Tom McCogue. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Great Amherst podcast. Uh, I'm excited. I'm pleased. Today, I'm joined by Tom McCogue. So welcome, Tom. Thank you. So I, in I think episode four or five, I talked to Jeff DeGans about the role of local news and local news organizations in our community. And I'd always been sort of in the hunt for to carry on this conversation. And I ran into uh, Tom again through some work and said, ah, Tom's the guy to come on and talk. <laughs> <laughs> talk some more about this. So uh, Tom currently is the communications director for the town of Amherst, and that's how we reconnected. And I asked Tom to come in, not come on, not in that role, but in his 
role or for, to talk about his experiences working for local news and in that industry. Um, so, like I said, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yes. And so, I just want to make sure that everybody does know that these are my personal thoughts. This has nothing to do with either working at the town or my previous role at the Herald. I think that's, that's key. So can you tell us about, so actually I'll start. I think growing up in Amherst, I think I knew you best from either the little league field or the hockey rink. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily from the, the newspaper or cadets. I didn't go the cadets right. route, but can you tell us about your, what's your background in the news industry here and in Nova Scotia? Yeah. Can you fill us in a bit? Well, it's more than 50 years ago. Uh, I was sitting in a grade 10 French class in a place called Palmerston, Ontario. I was failing miserably and I was invited uh, by the guidance counselor to come down for a chit chat. I thought it was because my parents were both teachers and they were going to tell me that, uh, you know, I had to pick up my socks in the French class. But instead, it was the a guy by the name of Art Carr, who was the owner, editor, publisher of the Palmerston Observer, a little weekly newspaper that produced about 1,700 copies a week. He was looking for a high school kid to work after school and on weekends. Um, he did not explain what the job was going to be, and I had no idea, but I, I wanted money to buy a pair of goal skates because uh, in those days I thought I might be able to play hockey. <laughs> that's a that's a familiar uh, story. I think I started delivering when I was eight or nine. I started delivering the Chronicle Herald because I wanted to save money to buy a Game Boy. So <laughs> it's amazing what motivates you. So does the Palmerston exactly. Observer still does it still exist? No, it does not. Oh, when I joined the Palmerston Observer, I think it was 1972. There were one, two, three. In, in the local region, there was five or six little weekly newspapers. Um, each one of us seemed to have our own territory. And, uh, you know, we covered everything that newspapers cover today and media covers today, from murders to, well, one of the, the assignments when I tell people that I used to do it was we used to go cover showers. Now, I'm not sure anybody in this generation knows what a shower is Talking like what, wedding or baby showers yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so when somebody was getting married they would call up the newspaper and say we're having a wedding shower for so and so and i'd be sent off with a camera and notepad and i'd take a picture of the bride to be with the poor roll of toilet paper on her head or something like that and you know do a short interview with her about how happy she was to get married and we'd put it in the newspaper We'd also put things in like, uh, you know, uh, Tom McCoe visited with his, with his parents, Royden and Jermaine, at, uh, on Derby Street on Tuesday and Wednesday of the past week. Uh, people laugh at those things today, but back then, and I think even now, it's what we're here to talk about. It's the localness of what news is. And the fact that, you know, I came home from Nova Scotia to visit with my mom and dad, well... That could be news to somebody, I suppose. <laughs> so you started the Palmerston Observer in high school. What was your, how did you make, I'll say for lack of a better word, transition into doing it as a profession or as a career? 
Well, when I when I started at the Palmerston Observer, I was fortunate in that I uh, got to do everything, everything from sweeping the floor and taking the garbage out to running presses to doing darkroom work, taking the pictures to writing the stories. Now, most of it was high school stuff. When it came time for me to go to university or some post-secondary education, uh, my father wanted me to go to university because uh, he envisioned that I would follow in his and my mother's footsteps as a teacher. Uh, that didn't really appeal to me after working for the Palmerston Observer. So I talked to Art Carr and he suggested I go study photography because he figured I could write. And if I went to a journalism school, they would teach me only one style of writing and then I'd be locked. Whereas if I had the writing skill and the photography skill, I was more employable. So that's what I did. I went to Ryerson Polytechnical Institute, uh, which is now Ryerson University. And I graduated in 1980 with a Bachelor of Technology in Photographic Arts. While going to university, I did work one more summer at the Palmerston Observer, but by that time it had been sold to another person. And uh, the next two years, uh, I didn't really want to go back to Palmerston. And uh, I worked two summers as a public information officer at Ipperwash Army Cadet Camp. When I got, when I got done university, uh, I put applications out uh, across the world. Well, not really the world. Canada to me in those days was the world. And uh, I did so because the, there's a, oh, I can't remember the name. It's, it's an association of weekly newspapers and they used to publish the, this book that had the address of every weekly newspaper in Canada. And they had an office in Toronto, which is where Ryerson is. And I went there and I got the book and mostly Ontario places, but I sent them out East. I sent them out West. And uh, I guess you could say the very, very first professional job I had was with the King. No, it wasn't the King. It was the Stony Creek news in Stony Creek, Ontario, which is right beside Hamilton. There I was a photographer and a reporter and it just went from there. So I'm wondering when you go back to it, when you said you sent, you got the, almost like the phone book of the weekly newspapers in Canada, more or less. Do you remember what you sent everybody? Oh, I sent everybody uh, a basic resume that gave my experiences at the Palmerston Observer as a, uh, as a public information officer, my degree, my education. Uh, I sent them you know, a couple of things that I had written, you know, but at that point I really hadn't, other than the Palmerston Observer, really written anything. I was fortunate in that I also had two people who gave me resumes. One was Art, or not resumes, but references, Art Carr, and there was a gentleman by the name of Frank Golding. He was a major in the Canadian Forces, and he gave me a reference as well as Art, and I sent those, and uh, the first newspaper to reply uh, was one out in British Columbia. Uh, didn't figure out how I could get there. Uh, but then the Stony Creek News sent me one and I went and had the interview and they gave me the job. You know, and, and the Stony Creek News was part of a chain that had, I can't remember now, it was three or four little weekly newspapers. And we all worked out of the same office, which was kind of interesting because it was all centered around Halifax. So I 
I did mostly sports with them, though I did do some new newsworthy uh, stories. Um, some, like one assignment that they sent me to a nudist camp so that uh, uh, because Miss Nude World was going to be there and she had been an, a Hamilton native or something. That was an experience unto itself. That's uh, that's local. That sums up local news, doesn't it? You don't know what yeah, you're well, going to yeah, get. Kind of, uh, kind of. Lo- and and that's the question. What what is local news? Because if if you're a reporter sitting here in Amherst, um, local news is what takes place in Amherst and the immediate surrounding areas. Um, if you're working here as a reporter for the Halifax Herald. Uh, Local news is what happens in at Amherst Town Council meeting. Local news, well, it depends on what happens. Not everything is. Whereas, if when I worked, for instance, at the Spring Hill Record, uh, whatever the issue was, it could be lights going up uh, in the middle of nowhere. You know, putting street lights, a dog bylaw. You know, uh, whatever it was, it was news, and you reported on that item if there was 10 items at council you had 10 stories or at least 10 news briefs working at the herald you might look at it and go well i came to the meeting there really isn't anything here on a provincial basis that people would really want to read about but you did talk to a counselor and you discovered that you know teacher x at the school had just won a national award well there's your story it didn't come from council but you write the story yeah, it's kind of somebody in, uh, you know, somebody in Bridgewater doesn't necessarily care about a new te- dog bylaw in Spring Hill, Nova Scotia. Well, exactly. You know. But a teacher, te- national award, yeah, for sure. So that actually, that brings it back. When, when I was trying to remember, I, I, I said, I thought you had worked for the Amherst Daily News, but you said no, you'd started I at never- Spring Hill Record. Uh, I never, I never worked, I n- never worked at the Amherst News. A lot of people think that I did, but I didn't. Um, I was working at the Stony Creek News when I got uh, a letter from uh, Mr. Murray at the Picto Advocate, uh, Picto, Picto Advocate, Advocate Printing and Publishing of Picto. It, that's a long time ago, trust me. And, uh, he had talked to Art Carr uh, before he had sent me the letter, and he offered me a job that was uh, $10 uh, a week more than what I was making at the Stony Creek News. I was making $125 a week at Stony Creek News, and they offered me $135. Uh, I went to my bosses at the news and basically said to them, I won't move if you'll give me the 135 bucks." Uh, a week, and you lift the the probation period that I was still on. They declined. I moved, <laughs> and I came out. Uh, I worked at the the Spring Hill Record, uh, and it was kind of interesting because we basically covered Spring Hill. We had a reporter in in uh, Parsboro that did that part of it because it was the Spring Hill Parsboro Record. Uh, but I rarely went to, to Parsboro to cover anything. It was, it was Spring Hill and it was everything from council meetings to police commission meetings, uh, to interviews with people I just thought were interesting, you know, clubs that had interesting things happening, anything and everything. And I was not only a writer, but their photographer and darkroom technician. I did that for a year and, uh, 
I was, they were all great people to work with, but I was young enough for every other employee to be their grandson. So uh, there was a little differences of opinion and I decided that it was time to move back to Ontario. So my wife and I, Joanne, uh, we picked up and we moved to Kincardine, Ontario, where I worked at the Kincardine Independent. Again, it was a little weekly newspaper. Uh, we, again, covered everything from what the police were doing, courts, councils, what the clubs were doing. If a club had a, like the Rotary Club here has a guest speaker, we would go and whatever that guest speaker talked about, we would report on it. I got a, another letter from the record uh, after about, let's say I went back in August. To, so it would have been, oh, March, March, I came back of 82 um, to the record after receiving a letter, and I stayed until August. And what happened was the Herald had reopened the Amherst Bureau, and the person that was the reporter then was being transferred back into Halifax and they were looking for someone to do the job and they decided it would be uh, better to have somebody from the local area do it than hiring somebody from Halifax and sending them up. And uh, Steve Thorne was the reporter at the time. He went on to work for CP, won all kinds of national awards, covered the war in Afghanistan and all great things like that. Uh, and he took me to lunch and suggested I do an interview with the Herald, gave me the name of a gentleman to call. I called him, set up the interview. And uh, when I moved to Nova Scotia, the, the deepest I went into Nova Scotia was Spring Hill, really. Like I didn't go to <laughs> Toronto. You know. uh, I think I made two trips to Moncton in the year I was there the first time, uh, simply to take planes home, one to get married and one to visit with my parents in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is when you made so, the newspaper back home. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and, uh, the, uh, the guy wanted me to go to Halifax for an interview and he gave me the street name and, uh, he gave me directions how to get to the Herald building then on Argyle street, where the world center or whatever they're calling that thing is now. And uh, I got, I didn't want to be late, didn't know the way. So I got out, we didn't have you know GPS stuff in those days. We had old maps and I followed Halifax and got there in plenty of time. I got there probably an hour, hour and a half before the meeting. The problem was all the streets that he had uh, given me to get to the Herald were uh, under construction and closed. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was completely lost and it was getting really close to interview time. So I got this smart idea that I'd find the next parking spot, put the car in it, write down the intersection name and call a cab or hail down a cab and tell me to take you to the Herald building. And, uh, so, you know, I'm driving around in circles, completely lost. I see a parking spot. I fill into it. I get out of the car and Halifax Herald limited was on the door of the, so I figured <laughs> it was a good sign that I might have a chance at the job. Perfect. So then, yeah, that, that, that sounds like Halifax downtown, always yeah. under construction. Don't know where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't think I remembered it being the specifically like the, the Amherst Bureau of the 
was the Halifax Herald or the Chron- was it Chronicle Herald at that time? It, well, it was the Chronicle Herald when I, when I went there, uh, and it still is. It's it's the Halifax Herald Limited. They were the publishers at that time of the Chronicle Herald and the Mail Star, which was a morning newspaper, which kind of circulated mostly around Halifax. So there was some distribution. The Chronicle Herald was the paper that went across the province and we uh, claimed we were the provincial newspaper of record. Um, yeah, that was in the July, August of, of 1982. And I got the job and, and uh, it's kind of interesting because with this coronavirus stuff, they talk about you know this new experience of working from your home. It's not a new experience for me. I did it for 25 and a half years uh, out of the basement of my house uh, uh, on Russell Street. And, uh, you know, so it, you know, you worked out of your house. The commute was short. <laughs> <laughs> that made it nice. And then how long were you based in Amherst? I was in Amherst uh, from August uh, 1982 to... February 2009. At that point, they decided the, the recession had hit. They decided that one of their cost-saving message methods was to close the bureau up here. Uh, and uh, they offered me a choice of being unemployed or moving down to the Halifax Herald and being a copy editor. So I took up their offer to go down to Halifax, become a co- copy editor. I lived in Enfield, uh, commuted in every day. Commute all of a sudden became a lot longer. Uh, it was different being an editor in that when I left the building, I was done. Uh, as a reporter, uh, especially in the house, if the Herald phone rang, I answered it. Um, as a reporter, and the only one in the area, if, uh, say, a fire alarm went off and you knew it was a fire that was <laughs> going to need coverage, well, if it was 2 o'clock in the morning, you went. And if you worked 16, 17 hours after that, that's what you did. And, uh, it was great life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not so sure my four kids and, and Joanne enjoyed the, uh, uh, alarms going off, uh, when you're sitting down for one of your kids' birthday dinners or in the middle of the night, but they got used to it. I'm curious. So, so in 2009, when they closed the bureau up here, were there still other bureaus in the province? There were a few, yes. There was one in Truro. Uh, they kept a cup, one in the Valley and one in, I can never remember if Kentville and Bridgewater or which one's in the Valley, but they kept bureaus there. They kept one in Sydney and they kept one in Yarmouth. But all of those bureaus had had two or three reporters in them. And they were all cut to one. So, I mean, they, they did get cut. Um, uh, and, and that's the big one of the big differences between today and back then. When I first came to Amherst in 1982, there was my bureau for the Herald. There was the Amherst Daily News. And at that time, they had three reporters, a managing editor and a night editor. Uh, well, the night editor was one of the reporters. So they basically had three reporters, editors and, and the managing editor for the daily news they also had jerry remington doing the uh, amherst uh, citizen 
I believe they had a bureau or a separate paper out in Parsboro. The Spring Hill Parsboro record still existed. And it also had, you know, the, the bureau in Parsboro. Um, the Oxford Journal was in existence and they had, well, it was kind of a family operation. So as actual reporters, they had one. And of course, the radio station at that time was only CKDH, and uh, they had two reporters, and they they had uh, ownership that felt local news was vital. So they had a newsroom, and uh, over the years, that has changed to today. Their uh, CKDH and now CFTA they do news but they don't have dedicated newsrooms to my understanding. Uh, the Amherst daily news no longer exists. The weekly that replaced it, the Amherst news exists, but doesn't because during the pandemic they have closed. Uh, well, they've closed the office. They've that happened even before the pandemic hit. Uh, they, when I, came back. I think they still had three reporters. They had one in Spring Hill because they took over the Spring Hill record. They had uh, two in Amherst and now they're down to one. And that person isn't a, he's a full-time employee, but he's not a full-time reporter, even though he's killing himself uh, trying to do it because one of his other duties is uh, doing what I call a, a source editing. He basically has to find stories on the national and international level that he provides to the people that are uh, laying out there now. I think it's four daily newspapers. So, and that it's not a job that takes, you know, five minutes to do. It's no, a job that's a that long takes one. Four or five hours. Yeah. Cause at this point you also have to make sure that it's uh, we'll say reputable news that mm. you pass on and, you know, well, that may be a different topic for us to carry. <laughs> most newspapers, obviously, I mean, they, they either belong to Canadian press or there, there's other. Uh, yeah, Reuters uh, or the AP. Reuters, or, but there's there's like uh, Torstar has kind of their own thing going. And there's another group that uh, I don't pay any attention to their names anymore. But the, uh, like the Herald no longer uh, uses CP copy or Canadian press copy. It, it goes with this other one and it's a dollar and cents thing. So, you know, it's, it's finding the, the news that you think is worth it. Um, you brought it up earlier and I'd like to transition and talk sort of about why local news is important, but I just want to take one um, quick second, just uh, remind everybody you can subscribe to our email newsletter um, and we'll send you out most up recent ep episodes directly to your inbox uh, this way you won't miss any of the interviews, any of the topics, any of the local stories, local uh, issues, any of the conversations we have here. Just go to uh, tgapod.com slash subscribe, enter your name, enter your email, hit the subscribe button, and you'll start getting them all sent directly to you. And that way you'll make sure you don't miss anything else. So I guess, Tom, it, well, let me ask you it this way. If someone was to come to you and say, you know, why should I pay for saltwire.com or the Chronicle Herald or, or support C, CFTA or CKDH? I can get everything I need on Facebook or online. What do you say? When, when people ask me that question, and I've been asked it many times, it's great that you get your news from a source. 
it's better that you get your news from a reputable source that has a record of what they're doing. However, if you just get it off of Facebook or you just use Twitter or one of the other social medias, um, they don't pay for that news. They don't pay to generate it, to go find it. So if you read a news story on Facebook, it has come from some other source that is actually paying the reporter uh, to go do that news. So basically what you're doing by not getting a subscription to a local paper uh, is you're killing the local news source. Um, it's great to be able to read on Facebook, you know, that this happens, but how much of it is really local news? You know, very little. Uh, and I, and I experienced it because I experienced it when Facebook's first started coming in, right? You know, there'd be the little post that said, Oh, go read Tom McCoke's story. Well, <laughs> that's fine. You can go read my story. I'm glad you're reading it. Uh, but you're not helping to pay it so that I can keep doing it. And, and as you've seen, in countless discussions, you know, they claim like Facebook and Twitter is killing local news. And I believe that that's exactly what's happening. The problem is eventually, and you just have to look at Amherst to see the case. Like I mentioned earlier, when I first came here, the radio station had newsroom, the Amherst Daily News had a newsroom, the Palmer's, or the, the Oxford Journal, the Spring Hill Record, you know, they all had what's left in Amherst. There is no local source in Amherst with the exception of a, I'll say again, a part-time reporter, even though he's working full-time and he's doing if a not very more. good job doing what he's doing. But there's now one reporter covering all of Cumberland County and beyond Cumberland County now. Um, whereas there used to probably be close to 20. Yeah. And I think with this, so I don't, we can't go back to that. Like we, like we can't go back to that. We can't support, you know, six or seven different large news organizations. Like it's just, it's not, I don't think the economics are there and I don't think, and I think this conversation isn't to say we should go back to that or anything like that. Um, I think the, the, I was thinking the other one that I was thinking about sort of the Facebook, the Twitter, the social medias companies and their impact on local news. And one of the thoughts I had, I'm kind of curious to see what you're, your your take on it is is i think when the amherst daily news was locally owned when ckdh was locally owned when spring hill record when they were locally owned the success of the community directly impacted the success of the paper and i think that the success of amherst has no impact on facebook it just it well, we exactly. just don't matter to them facebook doesn't care where they get the source of news from or their their news articles from what is important to them is they get it for nothing and all the clicks generate the money. So there's no, from a business aspect, there's no input back into the local community. Whereas a locally owned newspaper, uh, they, you know, they, they pay their employees. Those employees go out and buy stuff from the local business people. And so it's that, circle of life, so to speak. <clears throat> With Facebook and Twitter, that doesn't exist. Because once you go to Facebook, and that's the only source that you're going to use, A, 
it's not costing you anything. So you don't spend your money locally. You don't spend money supporting local things. And what money you do hand out, you know, through advertisements with them or whatever, goes to a guy that owns billions of dollars and doesn't want to share it with anybody really, unless he gets his good name. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, do you know, do you know anything about the share structure of Facebook? Not a thing. So there's, so I could go on about for about 45 minutes to an hour on Facebook, but I'll very quickly, Facebook has a dual share, dual share structure. So there's the shares that are sold on the stock market. They all have like a one, one share, one vote. There's a second class, I forget the name of it, that are owned by like the CEO, some of the top people on that. And they're like a super voting share. Each one of their shares counts as 10 votes. So Mark Zuckerberg has a share structure set up. So he always has voting control of the company, no matter how many shares of the company he sells. So basically he's unaccountable because he always have, has more than 50% of the votes to the company. Anyways. And you know, uh, it, he probably has never heard of Amherst, Nova Scotia, probably hasn't heard too much about Nova Scotia until the recent shootings probably. But, uh, you know, that's a heck of a way to get you known, right? Um, but again, it comes down to when I when I first started working at the Palmerston Observer, I, I worked for a guy, like I said, his name was Art Carr. Now, Art was lamenting way back in 1972, three, four, five, about how chains were destroying the Canadian journalistic field. Chains in what sense? Well, it might take a little bit of a story, but here okay, it goes. Sure. Okay. The, the, when, when Art moved to Palmerston in 1936, he became an employee of the Palmerston Observer. Six months after he got there, shortly after he got married, uh, the recession was really bad in Palmerston and the newspaper went belly up. Um, he was wondering what to do. The local business people got together and said they needed a newspaper because they needed someplace to advertise their stuff. And they knew that the stories about local people would bring people to their advertisements. So they approached our car and said, Hey, would you please run a newspaper? We'll give you a loan. We'll give you generous terms. And they did. I mean, Art used to take uh, new shoes for his kids uh, in payment of uh, a subscription. Uh, wasn't happening by the time I got there, but in 1936, it certainly did. When he joined and decided to do that, and he made a success of the newspaper, again, like I told you, there was four or five, six other little weekly newspapers. Each one of them was independently owned. Now, none of them were just newspapers. They were also printing plants because you needed both to have a way to survive. Uh, when I joined the the Observer in '72, uh, those were all still there. There, there was also a bureau of the uh, Toronto Star, the uh, Kitchener Waterloo Record, and the Guelph Mercury. So there was all kinds of newspapers. But then the movement came for change to start buying these things up. So when there was all these independents. All the editors wrote editorials, and they wrote editorials 
based on a local view, it might be a national issue, it might be an international issue, but how did it affect Palmerston or Harrison or Listable or Mount Forest or Arthur or one of those places? The chain started buying it up. And the individual voices that led to discussions within communities began to disappear back in 72. Come to today, we know that Saltwire bought all the weekly newspapers and all the daily newspapers in Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Prince Edward Island. Yeah. If you go on their websites now, because of COVID-19, there's basically Saltwire stuff. You can do the Chronicle Herald, but the weeklies are all gone. But even then, you stopped seeing the local conversations. They would appear occasionally. But all of a sudden, your colonists were national colonists or provincial colonists. Uh, I know John DeMott. He's one heck of a fantastic writer. And he gets to soul-searching individuals who you know, have great stories to tell. But his stories are Halifax-centric and Halifax-issue-centric. So very little or very few times does it broaden. It broadened, for instance, at the shooting thing. But where you used to have 10 or 12 different little weekly newspapers with different opinions, now you have one. The editorials are all generated from a central source. So the, the voice has become homogenized and weakened because going way back again to the Palmerston Observer, Art every now and then, uh, the community I grew up in was bilingual, basically English and Dutch. Okay. Of course, the, uh, you know, <clears throat> unless you were Dutch, you really didn't know Dutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dutch folk, like my friend Harry Pinksy and his family, they had to learn English, and they did. Uh, but of course, we're a bilingual country, as in French. Mm-hmm. And there was a handful of French-speaking people in the town, one being my mother. Mm-hmm. But every now and then, he would write an editorial that basically said, why do we have French on our post office doors? You know, nobody knows what Pousset means or whatever, however you pronounce that word. Uh, so why do we have it? Why do we have it? It's no good. Well, he knew by writing that editorial that my mother, Mr. Adette, and a whole bunch of other French would write and and they would start conversation about why f- learning French, why having French in the community was valuable. And the discussion wasn't like the kind of discussions you hear today where, you know, you're stupid if you don't and you're stupid if you do and nobody has a, a, an opinion where you can share on a calm basis. They would have discussions about, you know, why it might be better to be unilingual English and have the whole country unilingual English. Why it was important to be bilingual. And they would do it in a, I don't want to say socially acceptable way, but a a calm discussion type way, as opposed to a big argument. Like in in sort of a search for understanding. Like I want to understand where you're coming from or to hear what you're saying, not... Exactly. Yell about my you point know. to browbeat you into agreeing with me. Exactly. You know, and, 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 and you watch that conversation. And that's one of the things that has changed in my, oh, good God, almost 50 years in, in journalism. They, they, they uh, 
you know, it, they've become really shrill points and people are taking sides. News organizations are taking sides. Now, is that a new phenomenon? Not really. Because in the days when you had four or five daily newspapers in a community like Toronto, you would have the conservative newspaper, you would have the liberal newspaper, you would have the communist newspaper, the NDP newspaper. Eventually, journalism became one where you were supposed to tell the sides of both sides of the story so that mm-hmm. the general public could make their name. The other That's thing- what they call the view from nowhere, isn't it? Is, wasn't that what the term you hear around a bit now? Kind of, you know, it was, it was, you know, you, you gave the, you gave both sides or you at least tried to give both sides because sometimes the other side didn't want to talk. And, you know, uh, as a reporter photographer, you basically uh, said, here's the facts. You make your decision. A lot of journalism today is, they add what I call editorializing to it. And myself, I find that hard to take because it doesn't leave me to make a decision. The journalist is telling me how I should think. And that to me is not the role of a journalist. It might be the role of a columnist, but that's different than a reporter or, you know, they still call themselves journalists, but a columnist is to give you ideas and thoughts and positions. A reporter's job is to, this is what happened. You know, this is why these people say it happened. This is why these people are against it. Make up your mind. There's, there's a, a debate in any community that brings up fluoride, right? Uh, whether you put fluoride in the water and, and you get both sides, just boom. You know, they're, 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 they're both enthusiastic. They're, they're both convinced their side is right. And they go to all lengths to get their message out. And the conversations get shrill. That's the thing that I noticed mm-hmm. different from when I first started is the shrillness a, in the conversations. I, 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 I did three interviews that are kind of airing now with uh, Bill Casey, uh, Terry Farrell, and Rob Small to talk about politics and political hobbyists, which are people that view politics as a support or as a sport. And anyway, there's a lot more to it. And I started reading, there was a book that a guy wrote that introduced the concept and I started reading it recently. And he started talking about the fact that you take fluoride, for example, the consequences of it either way are not huge, but in it's something that people can get behind very quickly, very easily, and they can go to their sides. I use that as an example. And it's an interesting concept because it's, if you go to your sides, for example, treating COVID-19 and your side's wrong, the consequences can be huge because it's as much you're supporting your team. My team says fluoride's good. Therefore, I'm getting in and supporting my team. Like same way I get in and support the Ramblers. And that team over there is, you know, the Churro Bearcats. I'm going to just go against them because they're Churro. They're not the Ramblers. And you can very easily go to your sides. And if you're and the consequences, if the Bearcats beat the Ramblers, really small. Like, you, you feel upset, but then you carry on with your life. Anyways, it, it, it's an interesting way to look at some of these different political issues. Um, and I think we'll say local news kind of fits in this, too. Because I think there's two things with this. Is I've thought recently, I think my generation... So we got high-speed internet at our house in 98. Months later, Napster came out. And I could download any song I wanted 
for free. And I could get any song I wanted for free. And I thought, perfect. This is a victimless crime. And then very quickly moved from downloading any song I wanted to, hey, I can get my news articles for free. Victimless crime. And I feel like to some extent, 20 years later, 25 years later, I'm starting to go, oh, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't. Maybe I just didn't understand the victim and understand the consequences of it. So with that, I, I'm wondering, what, what do you say? Why is the local news important to our community? It's important because it helps drive that sense of community. Uh, you know, whether you're on this side of the fence or that side of the fence, you know that this is an issue that's going to affect your community, whatever the issue is. You know, it, it could be the fluoride, it could be the taxes, it could be a bump on the road leaving out of town. You know, it it brings the community together, even if you're apart, because you have your different opinions, obviously. But it gets people talking about what is best for the community. And that voice is needed. You also need a source of news about what happens locally that you can trust. Um, not saying that you can't trust the stories that are on Facebook, but you, you, you hear a certain gentleman talking about fake news. And fake news is anything he decides that he doesn't like. Um, you know, I saw a post the other day, uh, I don't know how many people remember Walter Cronkite, and the post was basically, <coughs> excuse me, the post was basically, you know, there was a time when a man got on the uh, TV and read the facts and just the facts, and that was it. When I first started in the, in, in the newsroom, uh, let's take a car accident, for instance. Um, you know, he wanted a picture to go with it. So you would go to the scene and you would see the carnage, you know, the cars torn up. Uh, there could be people lying on the road. You didn't take any pictures until the firefighters were done putting the fire out. If there was a fire in the car, you didn't take any pictures of the victims lying on the road or in the car or being transported in the ambulance and that kind of stuff. You waited until they were all gone and you took a picture of the busted car and then you're, caption or the story, you know, you would say, you know, four people were injured in a single vehicle rollover accident on route two at such and such a time, whatever that so-and-so was taken to the hospital or three of them were taken to the hospital with undetermined injuries. You'd call the hospital in those days, the hospital would actually give you the injuries. Oh yeah, we've got a guy here with a broken leg. Over time, all of a sudden people said, oh, there should be people in the picture. So again, you'd wait till the scene was practically cleaned up and then you'd say to one of the firemen or one of the police officers, take a look at the vehicle. And so you'd get the picture of the police officer, the firefighter kind of looking at the car. And then it was, no, you need action in the picture, just not people. So, you know, you you try to get a picture of like, uh, like I took a picture once, you couldn't see the victim, but uh, it was over the overpass by exit four. Um, and uh, this person had rolled the car. They had to rip the roof off. There was a firefighter with a, a, a saline solution bag that they'd obviously put into the victim, right? And I had all these, you couldn't see the victim. And that was great. Nobody had a problem with that. But times change. So you get to today. First of all, the police aren't going to tell you the people who are in the, the car that were crashed. The hospital isn't mm -hmm. going to tell you anything about their conditions, mm -hmm. although those are publicly 
you're now getting people who say, oh, how dare you put that up on Facebook before, you know, they told their families. Well, it's happening in your community. People will spread it by word of mouth, probably even quicker than what Facebook and Twitter can do. And so do you want to get it right or do you want to get it wrong? And I, and I have personal experience with that. When I was a university kid, um, mm-hmm. I helped save the life of a person who jumped out of a four-story window. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I knew what happened. I, I actually had watched the guy who was higher than a kite, decided, dressed as Batman, that he could fly. And he jumped out the window, uh, went right through it. You know, uh, when I got down there, there was a big crowd of people around him, but nobody was helping them. So, you know, I had just taken first aid, so I did it. So I knew it had to happen. So I'm sitting, you know, I, I still have to go to school the next day because uh, this all took place at night. I'm sitting in the school cafeteria and I'm listening to people talk about how this guy was pushed out the window by his worst enemy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't say anything, but I wanted to get up and say, no, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. But again, the the rumors go, you know, stuff goes and, one of the roles of local media is to sift through the rumors versus facts. And so you place the fact, even as a journalist, I covered a trial once where um, I don't want to say I made enemies, but there were people who did not like me after it because in the trial, they reported what the accused had done. And that's all I did was I reported exactly what had been brought up in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Of course, the family was upset because they had a slightly different story and they hadn't got to that part of the story yet. Right. But, right. Uh, you know, I had people driving by my house calling me, and, you know, names and I had to tell my kids to stay in the house and relax. You know, like they were just people. Being well, say upset. Names that were usually used when you ref the Ramblers oh, games yeah, is yeah, perhaps yeah. that stuff. That kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> No, nobody's <laughs> lived until they've had they've had a you know a thousand to twenty five hundred people calling you a, an asshole. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 life. It's 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 what you do. You know, uh, but even then, you know, it, it it reporting on what the Ramblers do, reporting on yeah. what uh, the midget hockey team does. When I was a kid, the Palmerston Observer, even though they only really had two reporters, whenever I played hockey, whether it was Squirt, Bantam, Peewee midget there was at least a a summary of the game in the weekly newspaper so you knew what the hockey teams were doing you knew what the football teams were doing you knew what the track and field teams were doing you knew you know and and that's how some not me but some local kids became stars you know they they could pitch baseball like nobody in the area could so they you know here's this 14 year old kid striking out 30 year olds, you know, cause he's a member of the team. And so you write a story on him, right? Uh, that is kind of stopped now because you don't have enough journalists to do it anymore. And more and more mm-hmm. newspapers and media are relying on people to send them the information. So yep. in the case of sports, you send in your scorecard 
and you hope that they write the story. Well, if they can get to it, they'll write it, but they prefer you to write yep. it, right? So now all you're getting you is- You might as well post that on Facebook. Yeah. If you're writing it, you might as well put it out yourself. Exactly. You know, and then yeah. it becomes, okay, who's going to see it? Well, just my friends. Whereas if you have a yeah. newspaper or a radio, you know, you're going to listen to the local radio and, you know, it's going to be mentioned, you know, uh, Andrew Cameron hit a home run to lead the Amherst uh, Rambler baseball team to the championship or whatever, right? You don't hear that anymore. Yeah. And in that no. sense, you, again, lose a sense of community. It's the same yeah. with what's happening at the schools. When I first started covering uh, stuff as a reporter, you'd knock on the school door and you'd go in and see the principal and say, hey, you know, you got a kid that's doing something really well, got an award, got this, right? And Oh yeah, come on down. We just had this kid, you know, win a uh, a regional uh, speaking contest. So you go down and you take a picture of the kid, you know, pretending they're giving their speech, and then you contact the parents and ask them what they thought about it, or the school would line them up so they'd be there to tell you, and you'd have the story. Now you go into a school with a camera, and the first thing you get is, oh, there's somebody in the playground with a camera. He's taking pictures of my kids. Oh my god, that's terrible. Uh, and for some purposes, yes, it is. You know, um, but again, times change and what do you do? And now if you want to go into school, the school board basically has to tell you what you think the news is. And like a lot of institutions, and I'm speaking as a reporter, a lot of institutions, they like to say they're transparent, but what really happens, they don't want you to know. The, The stories that people are interested in are the stories that affect other human beings. Yes, we mm-hmm. can do a story on the tax rate that's coming out. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's great. Uh, but if you noticed in recent years, what, what uh, like when the federal budget comes out, what the major newspapers do is they go sit in a house with, uh, you know, a family that making X number of dollars and another family mm-hmm. that's making maybe $30,000 a year more. And then what I would call a rich family. And then they talk to them about yeah. how that's going to impact the individual person as opposed to, oh, the tax rate remained the same and therefore, you know, that's just the yeah. information. And with We're those stories missing at the local level, again, there's no way to generate a sense of community. You can, people are trying to do that now in Facebook. And if you have Facebook, it's probably a good way of doing it. But, uh, you know, and, and Facebook has made it so that you can direct your ads to a local postal code, for instance. So, you know, in some ways, Facebook can start to do that. Um, will it move that direction and keep moving that direction? Probably. No, I think it will. Um, well, I guess for them to make more money. Like will, if they, they'll if make you can more target money, your ads it's, better. It's, yes. It's the local people, again, that drive that kind of thing, you know, so... You have business A who's decided to hold a Victorian Day weekend, right? They go buy an ad in the newspaper. We go do a, not that we do it because they did an ad, but the little weeklies would go, oh, they're going to have something different. So that's news. So you'd go interview uh, one of the characters who's playing Sir Charles Tupper in the Victorian Day thing, what it's like to be Sir Charles Tupper for a day. and the fact that, you know, it was being done because business A was sponsoring it. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And people would get all excited and they'd go and participate. You know, it's the same with Canada Day. We all know what happens yeah. on Canada Day. I mean, <clears throat> we all know, well, maybe not this year with COVID, but we all yeah. know that, you know, Victoria Squares, there's going to be music there. There's going to be games. There's going to be face painting. There's going to be all kinds of fun and enjoyment. So you can, you can go there. You want to see those pictures of little Sally and little Timmy and the yeah. family out with their faces painted Canadian. You want to see them having fun doing it. And if it's not there, well, it's being filled by things like Facebook, but it's only being seen by their friends. Now they may have hundreds of friends, but. But you end up staying in your own circle. You don't see the other family or the other kids that are doing the same thing or you. I think it's like you said, you miss that sense of community or the broader community, like that beyond just your circle of friends, your circle of influence, that it is, we are a big community. There are lots of people and there are lots of things happening in town that you may just not know is going on. Well, and, and, and there you get into this big, small thing. You've got to remember, I grew up in a town of 1600 people. Okay. Yeah. So when I first came to Amherst, you know, the, People that worked out of Halifax would go, how do you enjoy living in a small town? And I'd yeah. look at them and kind of go, well, it's not a small town. It's a medium-sized town, if, if not a large town, because there's 10,000 mm -hmm. people here. And they'd look at me and go, well, you know, it's not like Halifax. Well, no, Halifax is a city. No, it's not. You know, um, yeah. And would I prefer to live in Halifax or live here? I think I prefer to live here. I know my neighbors. Uh, like. Uh, I'm now living on uh, uh, Casper Court, and mm -hmm. some of my neighbors are the kids that my kids played with. Yeah, now, we don't socialize like you no. know, but you know, but them. I know them. You know, yeah. um, and and because of that, I have a sense of community with them. I still have a sense of community with those people that I knew when I first got here. I mean, I remember mm -hmm. the first time I I, I met Jeff Gant. Right. But Jeff, uh, I didn't know who he was. All I knew was the fire department was raising money for muscular dystrophy and they were having this event at the fire hall. And I thought, oh, that's a good news story for the Herald. Let's go do it. So I walked in and there's Jeff DeGans and Ron Robinson and McPhee. What was his first name? I can't remember his first name, but they're all there. That's where I met them. You know, and, you know, Jeff was doing his MC thing that he does quite well plus reporting on it and you know i reported on it and even though the folks at the radio station and the folks at the amherst daily news were my competition so to speak um i never viewed them as that um yes i i did like scooping them you know we all do as journalists you know i'm sure daryl enjoyed scooping me and enjoy scooping other people i'm sure jeff and ron enjoyed scooping other people so we were there to get the message out as to what was happening in the community in our various mediums and people would say to me oh there's nothing in the herald there's nothing in the amherst daily news and i'd ask them well, what's missing you have the sports in the amherst daily news about what's happening locally, the Ramblers and all that kind of stuff. In the, the Herald, you've got the scorecard that sits on the bag of the score sheet and you have to look for it. It's that, it's that big, you know, whereas the record 
or not the record, but the Amherst Daily News has a 12-inch story on the Rambler hockey game. And the radio station, ever since Saturday night, you know, it's now Monday morning. They're reporting on who scored and whatever. And you know, so you've got that sense of pride in your community. You've got that sense of, of community. And, and community is extremely valuable. Because if, if you don't feel that you're part of community, then you feel alone. And then we run into all the health issues that come from depression and being alone. And being part of a community can help deal with that doesn't solve it, but it can help deal with it. And, and what is uh, our community? Uh, people sometimes laugh at, you know, see why we love it. But if you actually sit down and look at what Amherst has, we have fresh water. Okay, yeah, you can complain that we put chlorine into it, you know, but chlorine was ordered into it after what happened in Walker in Ontario. I've been in many places across the country, and I can tell you the town's roads are no worse and no better, but they're there, they're maintained. Uh, mm -hmm. We have sporting places. You know, we, we have yeah. a rink, albeit it's old, but we have a rink that functions. You know, uh, we have hockey teams that we can support, both not just the Ramblers, but you know, you've got the midget hockey teams, you've got the Bantam hockey teams, you've got all of minor hockey. So, you know, you've got all those. So, again, that leads to community. You have uh, sewer. You have police protection. You have fire. There's a lot of places that don't. There's also a strong, I think it's easy to forget, a strong arts and culture scene exactly. in town that doesn't quite get the same promotion as sports, but it, it's still there and still helpful and still. Well, exactly. When I worked at the Herald, uh, they they called me. I mean, I, I'm a general reporter, so I cover everything. Okay, um, I used to write reviews on the ship's company theater. In fact, I covered their very first play. You know, it, it's it's the same with live bait theater. I covered their very whether I was any good as a re reviewer. Who knows? <laughs> you know, it, yeah, exactly. it really wasn't my forte, but but I did it. And not only that, but in this community. You had all kinds of local theater that was put on and, and theater classes and dance classes and all of those things made news at one time or another. It might be, you know, yep. a, a swimmer once the YMCA was built who went on to win a competition someplace. Yep. It could be a dancer who um, won gold at some place. I mean, our, our high school band used to put, go to the United States and win gold medals. You'd have stories on that. Now, they might not make the Herald, but they certainly made the local media. Everybody, whether you, you lived on Russell Street or Casper Court or around Albion Street, you were proud of those kids. They used to have the, uh, the Little League Ball Tournament on the Labor Day weekend. There's no more sense of community than, you know, I'm, a, I'm an umpire. I'm on the field, right? You know, so there's a break in action, right? Uh, and you look around and there's a thousand people lining the fence, you know, uh, and they're there to support their kids. Well, again, that's sense of community and they want to see it reflected somewhere. Now, in the old days, it used to be the newspapers. Modern days, it's, it's going to, this medium, the, the internet medium, um, 
is going to be the place that people find stuff. Now, whether the old media can adapt to the new media is still a question. One of the things that happened over the years is we all want the news, but we forget that it costs money to generate the news. And newspapers, uh, I mean, I can recall this conversation back in the the 90s and the early 2000s. What did we do when the Internet became available? We opened up, you know, before you had to buy a subscription to the newspaper to get the news. All of a sudden, we started posting all our stories for free. Yeah, and then it was, oh, we've got to put a little, uh, you know, roadblock in the way now that you have to pay for them. But because we gave it away for free for so long, people don't want to pay for it. So they think that news is free, and you can find it anywhere. And you know, I don't have a degree in journalism. Never have. You know, when I tell people that, they look at me astonishingly. You know. Because, you know, you've got U of Kings, you've got Holland College in this area that teach journalism. You have every university has English classes to become a Bachelor of Arts, right? And telling stories will always be around. It's Mm -hmm. where you find those stories. I mean, I can't remember their names. I, I can remember as a kid being interested in the fact that there used to be people who would go from town to town to town to tell people about an event. Oh, yeah. And But they got paid for it. You know, if, if yeah. it's, it's, it was like the buskers. If you like the story, you gave them a shilling or whatever. <laughs> so we're getting kind of near sort of the time. I don't want to take up too much more of your time today. And I, I really appreciate you coming on. And I think um, I have one sort of final either thought or question for you, but I think, one of the things I thought about a lot and you hit on it at the end is I, I've often thought local news, when you look back on it, almost becomes the way that a community communicates with itself in the way the community talks to itself. And I like that you connected it back, that it really helps build that community. So uh, again, thank you for coming on and sharing all this. And I'm wondering if you had to tell somebody what they can do now to help support local news, what can what can that one per that what can the person listening here right now? What can they go out and do? Well, um, again, if you value news, you should be willing to pay for it. And I don't mean just buying one subscription to, you know, this newspaper or this iPod broadcast or or whatever. It's a multitude. And I'm going to take you back to Art Carr when we when we started talking, right? He talked about the different me- messages that people were getting. To be truly educated, you can't be stuck on one note. And the only way you can educate yourself is to read and listen from a variety of sources. Uh, you may have a certain core belief in about how finances should be done or how social services should be done. Uh, But if you read a variety of news sources, you get a better sense of what is actually happening in the community. And and I'm going to bring it back to a, a local thing. I'm a reporter. I go to a town council meeting. In that meeting, there's 20, 30 people in the stands. 
you know, they're there just to listen. You know, there's the counselors, there's the mayor, there's the staff. I'm sitting there as a reporter and I'm listening hard. Okay. Cause I don't want to miss anything. I've got my little tape recorder running. Um, but I'm like every human being that's in that room. There's going to be something that catches my attention and that's going to become the focus of my story that I'm going to build all the information that I'm going to deliver out to. So I might think it's topic A, person two seats over, he hears something different that to him is most important. And you often hear this. Do you think we were in the same meeting? Well, you were, but your background, your whatever got you tuned into fact A, whereas I got turned into fact B. And so it happens all the time. You know, I once read somewhere that the, the worst witness you can have in a courtroom proceeding is an eyewitness. Um, and uh, I've seen that. In fact, uh, you know, as a reporter, you know, I, I can remember once a person got shot in town, you know, so I went out and interviewed a whole bunch of people. And this one guy told me exactly how he saw it. Right. And he was the only one that I could get to confirm that this is what he saw. So, you know, you run with the information that that person said. When we actually got to court, uh, the guy missed a few important details, but you know, <laughs> uh, you wrote about that when you got the guy to court. So that's your comment and your suggestion. One, pay for your news, pay for your local news and get more than one point of view, one point of, yeah, one point of view. That's really yeah, it. That's it, your. One point of view makes the blinders come on, you know, and that's when things get dangerous. All right. I think that's a perfect spot for us to wrap up. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate you no, coming on for Thank sure. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation that Tom and I had about local news. Uh, I hope you were able to learn a lot from Tom and his experiences. Uh, you know, like he said, he's been in the industry for, for many years and seen it change and come and go. Uh, and I still think he has a, he, he has a great passion for the industry and sees the importance of it. So again, like he said, you know, subscribe to multiple things, you know, locally we've got saltwire.com. We've got uh, the Chronicle Herald, their CFTA, their CKDH. We do have local news around that need our help and need our support. Uh, as always, if you enjoy the show and if you like it, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. That way you won't miss any shows. And the plan for next week uh, is I have another interview with uh, Brent Noyles from Kansa. So that'll be next week. And he shares a lot about what Kansa does and how it's able to help local businesses and help our local community. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.